Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Rob Arthur. Rob is a writer whose work has appeared at 538, Baseball Perspectives, Slate, and the Wall Street Journal. You can give him a follow on Twitter at no underscore little underscore plans. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you for having me on. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what got you into baseball in the first place. I think it was just watching baseball on TV with my dad. It was that kind of uh, experience of having a, a shared interest uh, with him. Um, I think that's probably the case for a lot of people. Baseball writing, um, I was uh, finishing my PhD, and I was kind of looking around for uh, other avenues, and I got into it essentially as a way to sort of have some more creativity in my life. And uh, from there, it kind of took off as a professional endeavor, where before it was a hobby. What was your first piece of baseball research? My first piece was looking at uh, David Ortiz. I think it was the 2014 World Series. But it was looking at David Ortiz's uh, performance in the playoffs and whether he was on a hot streak. And I basically looked at all the similar streaks that he might have had and concluded that he uh, his performance over uh, whatever 20-game stretch or whatever it was was no more extreme than you would expect by chance. Let's take a look at some of the statistical trends we saw in 2016. One of the things that you did a lot of research on is the increase in home run rate. This actually started at the end of 2015 and carried over big time last year. What was the primary cause of this? I should begin by saying that a lot of this was done with Ben Lindbergh, who was at 538 at the time and has now moved on to the ringer. And the short answer is that we don't know. The longer answer is that we really suspect it was the ball change, the, the construction of the ball changed in such a way as to make it more essentially bouncy and it flew off the bat faster. But we don't have a definitive proof of that. And unfortunately, we couldn't get any um, unless we had actual samples of game balls to fire against a plate. Um, so... Uh, we're sort of uh, left with the strong supposition or idea that it's the ball changing, but no definitive proof. And is the idea that Major League Baseball is intentionally manipulating the ball in theory, or is this something that's just a random variance that happened with the balls? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, one we don't, we can't really know the answer to. I mean, uh, what we found in speaking with uh, some physicists, including Alan Nathan, um, was that a very tiny change in the construction of the ball could make a huge difference, could completely explain the increase in home run rate that we saw. So a 1% change in the coefficient of restitution that you would never be able to detect if you were just uh, playing around with the ball or feeling it or even hitting it, even as a major league athlete. You need very sophisticated scientific equipment to, to find it. So this tiny little 1% change could have caused the entire home run search. So it seems very plausible to me that there was some change in the manufacturing process or some, it could be a very minuscule change in one of the machines they use, for example, that would have introduced this uh, slight difference in the baseballs that produced then this giant home run spike. Um, so as to whether uh, MLB meant for that to happen or not, um, it's certainly convenient for them, which was something that we wrote about. Um, Manfred coming in had talked about uh, how it would sure be nice if there was more offense in baseball and uh, it would be great if, if some more home runs would start happening. And then sort of very early on in his tenure, magically it did. Um, so if you're a conspiracy theorist, you can look at that and say maybe this was something they engineered on purpose. 
but it's also entirely possible to me. Uh, it seems to me that um, a, a really tiny change in the manufacturing caused this without MLB ever having any idea that it was happening. And one of the interesting things that you looked at in your piece is that you sort of asked people or, or their prevailing wisdom at the time as to why this was happening was warmer weather or better players, specifically better rookies. And that turned out not to be true. Why were those things not true? Yeah, we knocked all of them down. Warmer weather does contribute. Um, it uh, The ball tends to fly a little further, but uh, it, it, it's global warming uh, and the increase in temperature that's occurred the last couple of years uh, hasn't really driven such an extreme shift in temperature that you would expect home runs to increase by the massive amount that they did. Um, same thing with uh, with um, young players in baseball. Young players have gotten uh, better recently, but they, if you look at which players saw their home runs increase, it was basically across the board. It was young players, it was old players, it was everyone. So with both of these things, they were there were changes. They might have put tiny dents in the home run rate, um, but they did nothing to explain this really giant, um, I think we found it was about a 30% increase relative to what you would expect uh, in home run rate. Um, so n- none of those factors could even come close to explaining that. And you follow this piece up a few months later with another piece about how this power surge is probably not linked to steroids as well. I, I think baseball fans get nervous when they hear increase in home runs and they think steroids are coming back into the game or at least more prevalent into the game. But you sort of debunked that as well. Why did you find that to not to be the case? Yeah, so that was uh, driven, I think, a lot by the, the uh, fan reaction that we got to that piece, which, like you said, everyone's very concerned about, uh, about the, the idea that maybe there's a new PED in the game that's causing all this. It, it, it didn't look like that was the case to us initially because, because it was so sudden. It happened actually mid-season in uh, 2015 that home runs just started increasing so massively. So our initial inclination was, well, it couldn't have been uh, PEDs because it's not like everyone started taking PEDs all at once. Um, when I actually looked at the PED era and how quickly the home runs increased at that time, I was surprised to find out that it actually did happen uh, quite quickly uh, around 1994. But there were some other factors about the PED era that really didn't show up in or haven't shown up so far, at least in baseball in the recent history. For example, one of the things is that the average age of the hitters went up a ton in PED era. And we think that has to do with the fact that performance-enhancing drugs uh, made these hitters uh, kind of stay healthier longer. And so you had guys like Barry Bonds remaining productive into his 40s, and that was when you got a lot of these massive uh, home run productions. The other thing was that there were more, many more outliers during the steroid era. So these uh, extreme home run hitters who were presumably chemically aided like Bonds um, and also Sosa and McGuire, um, they were driving the home run rate up to a much greater degree than what you see now. The top five or top 10 or top 20 hitters now, they're certainly far above the average, but they're not as far above the average as hitters were at that time. And that was unprecedented in MLB history and um, really hasn't happened. We haven't seen anything like that since. So Put those, putting those things together, it really does seem like it wasn't likely to be uh, steroids or another performance-enhancing drug that is just undetectable, uh, unless it unless it has a very different effect than the steroids that were used around the turn of the millennium. Then probably have to look somewhere else for the, the cause of this home run spike. And is the spike in home runs that we've seen over the last year and a half did that also trickle down to the minor league levels as well, or is that strictly in Major League Baseball alone? 
So far, it's only been in Major League Baseball, and that was one of the things that we used to provide some evidence. Um, we looked to the minors, and we looked in, in particular at AAA, and AAA usually has mirrored the Major League Baseball home run rate. But over the last couple of years, it started diverging really rapidly. The home runs were going up like crazy in Major League Baseball and actually going down in uh, AAA. And in fact, we took it a step further and looked at the players that shuffled between AAA and MLB. And we found that the players who had played in both leagues had a much higher home run rate in MLB. So that really implies that there's something about the equipment, right? Because they're the same players, um, and you can adjust for park and uh, weather and other factors. So what you see is you take the same pair of players even. We took the same hitter and the same pitcher, put them in the minors. Um, They don't hit as many home runs. Put them in the majors. Suddenly, there's lots of home runs. Um, so you, you're really limited at that point as to what it could possibly be. It's not the bats, probably, because you use the same bats. Uh, it's not the parks. It's not the weather. It's not the players. Uh, so one of the only things that's remaining is the ball, which is different between uh, AAA and the major leagues. And that's interesting. That also tells me that it's probably not steroids as well. When during the steroid era, the so-called steroid era, I always do the air quotes when that happens. But when during the steroid era, I think home run rate and slugging percentage and run scores went up at all the minor league levels as well. It wasn't just a major league issue that this is only happening in major league baseball makes me say that it's it's not steroids. It's definitely something else at play here. Right. I I agree with that. And uh, and we did see that very strongly during the around 2000. Um, all of these uh, hitters were went through the minors, and they did really well in the minors, and they elevated the home run rate and the slugging percentage in the minors as well. So unless unless it's like a performance-enhancing drug, the players only get access to uh, the moment they become major league players, and then they lose access to whenever they go back to AAA. It's really hard to see how it could be a drug. How far in advance do teams make their ball orders? So that's a, that's a good question. When we weren't able to get a definite answer to, um, for some teams, it seemed like they did it um, at the beginning of the season. They ordered all the balls they needed. But uh, a, a lot of others, we heard uh, they would replenish the balls over the course of time. And sometimes even though they, they ordered them at the beginning, um, the shipments didn't come in until midseason. We actually saw the timing of this home run spike was almost exactly around the time of the All-Star break. So it seemed very plausible to us that um, a lot of teams were getting sort of midseason new stocks of balls. Uh, during that break in play, and it, it was possible that those new balls could be changed slightly from the old balls. Given the uncertainty around the spike and around the balls themselves, do you think that this trend continues into 2017? I do. I think we, we've we asked MLB several times about uh, you know whether they have any thoughts about this, and they've completely denied that it has anything to do with the ball. They've said that their own internal testing shows that the ball is the same. I think it would be very suspicious to see the ball change again. I think that they're probably going to um, stick to to the, to the line that they have. And uh, the other possibility or the other thing I would bring up here is that even if uh, the ball had changed in, under the scenario where the ball changed due to some change in the manufacturing and they didn't know about it, um, it's still beneficial to them. And at th- this point, it would look bad for them to acknowledge that and change it back. So rather than do that, I strongly suspect that they'll just leave the ball as it is in whatever it's modified, if it is modified in its modified state, uh, and let the home runs continue. They've certainly been fun to watch. Um, so that was another thing. We were we were never like trying to say you shouldn't you shouldn't mess with the ball, um, or you shouldn't change baseball or anything like that. Uh, as a fan, I certainly have been enjoying seeing baseball uh, adapt to these new circumstances. So. 
I think it's it's made the experience, uh, if not better for everyone, at least more interesting to see that everything is changing so quickly. So I, I can't see why they would uh, why they would do away with that. Let's move off of this issue and move on to another. You had uh, created a defensive metric at, at the end of last year. The research was in the Hardball Times annual that came out in January. And it's a defensive metric called LARS. I guess let's start with tell me how it's different from DRS and UZR. Yeah, so uh, UZR and DRS and, uh, to my knowledge, all the public defensive systems, um, they're relying on stringer input data, which means that uh, when they're trying to figure out how difficult the ball was to field, they have people looking at the, at the game, watching it on video, and then charting where the ball fell and how hard it was hit and things like that. Um, Obviously, there are problems whenever you have stringers, right? Because uh, sometimes they don't have a good camera angle on it. Sometimes the optics of the play are deceiving. Uh, and, and they also don't have the capability to measure these things really precisely. So, for example, the hardness of a ball basically goes into three bins. It's either soft, medium, or hard. Uh, so what Lars does differently is it takes into account the new stuff, the new data that's coming out of StatCast. Um, in particular, two of the main metrics, um, exit velocity and launch angle. And those correspond to the speed that a ball is hit and the vertical direction in, into the ground or up into the air of the ball. So when you have those two bits of information, you're able to more precisely know how difficult a ball was to field. Uh, you can imagine if it was hit at 105 miles per hour towards a fielder, at a, you know, a 10 degree launch angle, that's different than if it was hit at 100 miles per hour. It makes a big difference for the probability that an average fielder is going to be able to field it. But if you're going back to like UZR or DRS, all you know is that the ball was hit pretty hard. I think both of those would probably correspond to the hard category. Um, so this has uh, essentially the advantage of a lot more granularity um, in the data. And that makes a big difference mostly for the outfielders, um, less so for infielders, but uh, it, it it tells you something about um, how it tells you something more than was available before about how difficult uh, every ball was to be fielded. Statcast doesn't record every batted ball. I think it misses about ten percent on average. Does Lars adjust and account for that? Yeah, it does, and that's a weakness in the system right now in the in the Statcast system. But what we can do is essentially we combine the stringer information with the Statcast. So the stringer information is not as granular, like I mentioned, and it's not as accurate, but it is complete. They don't miss any batted balls because there's someone watching every play. So what I did is essentially I took the stringer information. I said, if a stringer uh, wrote that a ball was fielded at this location by this player um, at this park, um, what's the most likely exit velocity and launch angle combination that gave rise to that location on the field, to it being fielded at that location? And so then I could sort of guess at what StatCast might have said. Um, and it was actually pretty accurate. Uh, not not ideal uh, to have that scenario where you need to impute the data, but it's a way to turn or to essentially make the StatCast data set complete. So a way of getting around that problem that you mentioned. How does Lars handle the defensive shift? We had uh, Ben Jeglovic came on the podcast a couple years ago who works for Baseball Info Solutions that's behind DRS. And he was talking about how DRS basically ignores the defensive shift. And the defensive shift is, is becoming more and more prominent. So I don't like a system that just ignores it entirely. What does Lars do? Yeah, so we, we don't... Um, we, so for this system, I don't ignore the shift. 
but I can't handle it in the direct way that you'd like to do it, which is to know where every player was starting uh, when the ball was hit. So if they were standing over here, you know, where directly in the path of the ball, that makes a big difference relative to their starting position that would normally be further away. Um, So I can't, I don't have access to that data, although it is collected by StatCast. It hasn't been released to the public yet. So all I can do is I can essentially put in a, a coefficient in the model to adjust for the team. And essentially that stands in for the team's savvy at producing defensive shifts or at telling players where to stand. The problem is it's kind of a catch-all. So um, you can imagine there's a smart team, for example, that knows how to do infield defensive shifts really well, but they don't know how to position their outfielders. In that case, my model would be misled and it would sort of converge on the average of the infield and the outfield and say, well, that that team is just sort of average at defensive shifting. It does it neither helps nor hurts their players. It's just in the middle. Um, when in fact, it would be the case that the uh, infielders being helped and the outfielders are, are being hurt, something like that. But uh, it is in the model uh, to some extent, and it does help to blunt the effect of defensive shifts, not do away with them. Because you're using StatCast, you only have two years of data really to go off of here. UZR and DRS, they both take a while to stabilize. Is there any evidence that Lars stabilizes quicker? Yeah, that was one of the first things I checked. And although UZR numbers are not available for half seasons, I compared my Lars uh, metric for uh, two halves of a single season. um, And I found that it stabilized roughly as quickly in those two halves as UZR does between full seasons. So since that a full season is is twice as much data, that suggests that Lars is stabilizing twice as quickly. Um, ideally, it would be even quicker. And I think if we had things like where the players are standing, um, that would be helpful uh, and make it converge more quickly to the true talent. But I, I still think it's a, it's a significant improvement, that twofold uh, increase in the speed that it uh, becomes reliable is a significant improvement compared to the traditional defensive metrics like UZR and DRS. And how does it handle catcher defense? It does not. Uh, at this point, um, I, I tried to remove uh, catchers from it, and I think that um, I think that's that's going to be tougher to to crack. Um, Baseball Prospectus has done a lot with with uh, valuing catcher defense. I think we'd need we that's one case where if we were to try and bring Stackass into it, we'd really need to have the full data set and where the catcher was and um, how fast the players are moving and, you know, especially things like bunts. It's really, it's, it's tough to, uh, to come up with a, a good way to do that unless you know really all the characteristics of that play. What players saw a big increase in terms of, or a positive increase, I guess, from UZR to your system? Are there players that benefited the most? Yeah. So one of the ones that was really interesting to me was uh, Nick Markakis. He, has long been regarded by the fans and by sort of the, the people that hand out gold gloves as a very good defender. Um, UZR has said, on in contrast, that he's been pretty bad for essentially his, his whole career and at every position he's played. Um, what my metric found is that he was in the top 10, I believe. Uh, and I was surprised to see that. Um, but I, I think there's probably uh, some kernel of truth to the idea that he's better than UZR thinks. And that would certainly accord with how he was valued by the Braves and getting his contract. Uh, And uh, they have more information than we do, certainly. So I thought that was an interesting disagreement between them. Um, I'm I'm still not 100% certain that Markakis is a great fielder, but I would suggest based on this that he's better than uh, 
terrible, which is UZR's verdict on him. I would think that this system, based on how it handles the shifts and just based on where the balls are being hit and what StatCast is measuring, improves on outfield defense greatly. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's where it's at its best. Um, StatCast has trouble recording infield batted balls. Um, That's just because of the characteristics of the radar. Uh, so balls that hit the ground early, uh, the radar can lose track of them in some cases. Uh, if a ball gets cleanly hit into the outfield, it's going to be tracked most of the time. So you have more complete data for the outfield, and that's where you get a, a better uh, advantage over UCR and DRS. In the infield, it's a little trickier. Where do you see defensive metrics in general as more StatCast data becomes available? How is this adaptable and where are defensive metrics headed in the next few years? So I tried to build Lars as kind of like a framework for evaluating defense rather than a finished statistic, um, because I know that essentially the moment it gets released or was released, it would be obsolete or made obsolete by more StatCast data getting released. I think that uh, what makes it a framework is that you can put in other StatCast provided data, like for example, uh, we were talking about before, where the players stand at the beginning of a play. You can put that into the same framework of Lars and and get probably much better results. Um, so that's going to be a big piece that needs to needs to go in. Another thing is um, there, although you have the launch angle and the exit velocity, you don't have the full trajectory of the ball, and that makes a difference if you have hitters that are putting a lot of spin on the ball. Um, you can see this sometimes with outfield players where uh, a ball curves in a certain way that they didn't expect and they end up missing it, even though it looked like it was going to be easy to get to. If we had the full trajectory of the ball, we'd be able to say the wind was pushing it this way and the spin was pushing it this way. And that all contributed to making it easier or more difficult to field um, than a normal ball that was hit at that launch angle and uh, that uh, velocity. So. Uh, putting all that in, I think, will will help a lot in measuring uh, defense. And finally, I think getting to the more granular performance data that StatCast can offer, like running speed, um, that will tell us that'll, – that'll, I think, make defensive metrics stabilize a lot more quickly because it, it's like sort of like if you know the process of how a hitter uh, hits rather than just the, the triple slash. You know, if you know he has good plate discipline and he's been hitting the ball hard – um, he might have a bad BABIP, but he is likely to succeed in the long run. Similarly, if you ha- if you have a guy and he's got a great first step, he's con- he's very quick to get to the ball. Uh, he's got a high top speed. Maybe his defensive metrics will not grade out really well as results, but it's likely that uh, given a little bit of experience, he's going to become a uh, quite good fielder. So that kind of performance level data will help uh, make defensive metrics more accurate and more predictive. You had another fun piece last year about bullpen management, basically creating a metric of which managers are the best bullpen managers by when they bring their relievers, their best relievers in, in the most high leverage situations. When you did this research, what did you find? Before I get into that, the basic idea was to look at the correlation between the leverage index, which is essentially the importance of a game situation and the skill of the pitcher that was coming in. Um, And we measured skill with deserved run average, which is baseball prospectuses, uh, reasonably new and very advanced statistic to uh, measure pitcher quality. So the idea is a good uh, manager is putting his best pitcher by deserved run average in 
at the highest leverage moments. So at the times when the teams, uh, the, the winner or the loss depends most on who's pitching. Um, so we put this in and we found that uh, a couple things that were striking. One was that managers were getting better over time. Um, so they were uh, actually correlating their use of pitchers more to the situation. And that kind of fits with what we've seen the last uh, last playoffs in particular, where we had uh, managers being very innovative and bringing uh, relievers into fairly high leverage situations that were earlier in the game, rather than strictly uh, going according to the like inning by inning roles, which had sort of been the default for a while. The other thing we found uh, was that a lot of the top uh, bullpen managers sort of intuitively, or if you ask the sample of 10 fans who were the best bullpen managers, a lot of those guys kind of accorded with this metric. Uh, so um, we had guys like uh, Joe Torrey and uh, Joe Girardi and um, Bud Black and some really smart managers that you would expect to be good at uh, bullpen management, at least in terms of the aspects that I mentioned. Those guys rated out highly. And uh, when you looked at how their team had performed, um, the the surprising thing or the most surprising thing to the the couple of pieces that we did was that it didn't really matter all that much how you used your your relievers um and that maybe that shouldn't have been surprising uh in some ways i think sabermetricians have been saying that for a long time but it, it basically made the difference of a win maybe two wins if you want to be generous a season uh depending on when you put your best relievers in the leverage index so it gets a lot of attention whether managers are good at using their relievers but it doesn't necessarily seem to make a big difference to wins and losses that's interesting and two significant things happened at the end of last year that may affect this going into next year and one was buck show walter not using zach Britton at all during the wild card game and the second was sort of andrew miller's dominance not just in the ninth inning but all throughout the game throughout the playoffs and i wonder how those things will impact bullpen management going into 2017 what do you think yeah, it's a really fascinating question. I think what we usually see is that the playoffs every year provide a preview of what, you know, whatever new tactical innovation is deployed in the playoffs of a certain year, you're going to see that in the next year's regular season often. Um, this was kind of an interesting case where uh, not only was Terry Francona using Andrew Miller in a very innovative way, like at certain spots, he was also using him a lot, which probably can't continue into the regular season next year. But I do think that a lot of managers are getting it into their heads that it's more the leverage index is the more important thing than the inning. And a lot of relievers, I think, are, are seeing that they're being valued by their performance, regardless of what inning they're in. Um, so they're not worried so much or as much about saves. They're worried about um, getting those outs. Um, so I do think that there will be some carryover. I think that we're going to see more and more uh, rather than having, you know, closer, uh, eighth inning guy, seventh inning guy, we're going to have sort of a late inning class of relievers and a mid inning class of uh, middle inning class of relievers. And within those groups, there's going to be a lot of floating around and a lot of varying usage, at least for the smarter teams. Um, and, uh, I think one of the most interesting questions for me is how the broader group of players will react to that, uh, and whether they'll be able to, uh, be okay with being used so flexibly. I suspect in the long run it will be okay, but it would be interesting or will be interesting to see if all the uh, relievers right now are able to adjust to that situation. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think they're all going to adjust right away. I, I had Mark Melanson on the podcast a few years ago, and I asked him if he would feel comfortable coming in in the seventh inning if the bases were loaded or in the eighth inning. And he said, no. He said, I get what you're saying, but I want to know when the phone rings that it's for me. I don't want to be up and down. I just want to come in in the ninth. My job is to get the saves. And when he signed with San Francisco this year, they were asking about Miller's use. And he sort of said at the press conference, he's like, look, I'll come in whatever they, way they want me. But he seemed a little uncomfortable with that. I don't think even though Miller was so successful with it, I don't think everyone, especially these relievers who have been trained to be one-inning pitchers, are going to be so adaptive to it. And that'll be one of the really interesting things to find out. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's going to drive, and that's often what drives the kind of long tail uh, of whenever a strategic innovation happens. It, it penetrates the league, the smart teams first, the smart players first. And then there's this sort of long period where it has to sort of filter down to... Um, teams that are not as smart or, or have to learn how to use it or players that came up training in a certain way and they don't know how to do this new thing. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're still seeing the occasional reliever who's just so dead set in his ways that he can't uh, can't be used in the seventh inning, even if it's the best time to use him. Uh, he just refuses, uh, you know, five years from now, maybe. Um, so there will probably continue to be situations like that, teams like that, managers like that. Uh, for a while, um, and it'll be uh, it'll be kind of a thorn in the side of the the teams to have those guys. But you know, in the case of someone like Melanson, right, it's worth it regardless. One of my favorite pieces you did was looking at Bryce Harper, who of course went from a historically great 2015 season and a historically great 2016 in April, and then he his production fell off a cliff. And you were sort of examining all the different reasons why that could be. And what was the main culprit that you found there? The main culprit was a loss of power. Um, And this was, again, looking at StatCast data, looking at the exit velocity. And you can tell a lot from looking at just that one number about a hitter. He was extremely powerful during his uh, amazing 2015 season. And he started out the 2016 season pretty powerful as well. But when you looked at over the course of the season, he was losing that and losing that. And in particular, if you zoomed in on the balls that were kind of like dead center, middle of the strike zone, he should have been able to drive them. Um, He'd lost a lot of power. He'd gone from like superhuman to kind of average in that zone. And so even though he was still a patient and a strong hitter, he he wasn't hitting them as hard as he had the year before. Very shortly after I wrote the piece, there was news that came out that he had an injury. Um, maybe that was sapping his power. I think it was a neck injury or a back injury, something like that. So it's, and that was one of the possible explanations that I posited in the piece was that something was wrong with him. Um, cause he certainly didn't like become any less, uh, physically impressive, uh, from 2015 to 2016. So if he wants to add more muscle mass, maybe that'll take him back to his 2015 heights. But, uh, I don't think that the problem was probably that he wasn't conditioned enough. It was, I think something, either some hitch in his swing or uh, some kind of uh, minor strain uh, injury type thing that was not allowing him to generate the same power that he was before. And he's interesting for many reasons, mainly because of so much talent and so much hype has been around him since he was in high school. But really, if we're being realistic about his career, 2015 is the blip at this point. That's the exception. What do you expect from him in 2017? So this is one case where I think the projections are uh, probably going to nail it better than um, humans are able to, because he, like you said, 
he's fluctuated massively. He's been injured and done not so well. He's been an all-star, and he's also had one of the greatest position player seasons of history in, in baseball. Um, so I think that the when you have that huge, massive variance about um, what's going on, that's like the ideal uh, time to look at the projections and get a sense. And I think they peg him as a, a pretty good player, but uh, not, not anywhere near his 2015 year. Um, and I think that's probably a, a good expectation for him, just in the sense that it's hard for anyone to to do what he did that year consistently. And so essentially the only person who's been able to do it in recent memory has been Mike Trout. So he probably can't do that every year, but he can probably be a, a quite good player um, outside of that. Looking ahead to this season, to 2017, is there something that you might expect to become the statistical trend this year? I think that StatCast is uh, expanding some more, and I think that they're beginning to provide some of the defensive uh, data. Um, they've been coming out with some cool charts uh, showing where outfields are positioned and uh, showing the difficulty of uh, different outfield catches. Um, so I suspect that, that that will be a major thing. I hope that they'll release that data publicly. Um, if they do, I think it really has the potential to... Uh, tremendously transform um, sabermetrics, uh, just having for once, uh, finally, a really solid way of measuring defense would be a massive leap forward. So I'm hopeful that uh, that, that stuff is going to come out and, and be public this year and allow everyone uh, to better understand uh, defense. You've been listening to Rob Arthur. Rob is a writer whose work has appeared at 538, Baseball Prospectus, Slate, and the Wall Street Journal. You can check out his website as well, makenolittleplans.net. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you for having me on.